Welcome to another edition of the Dishcast. I am super psyched uh, this time to welcome Caitlin Flanagan, the great writer from the Atlantic for many years and previously briefly for the New Yorker. Um, this year, I think, has been one of her vintage years for commentary and writing, I have to say. Um, the abortion essay was pretty staggering to me and beautifully oh, done. Did and you read that? Of Thank course. You. Of course. It's a question I've wrestled with uh, in my own conscience for a long time, even though I, as a gay man, are the least likely to have any actual <laughs> real interaction with the topic. Um, Except uh, for the fact of your own humanity. Yes. So you have absolute, the idea that, that it should be left only to those who, who might have actual need of it, 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 that's not right in either way. They might not have enough political power to do it if someone thinks it's the right thing. And they, they might not be able to see the full morality of it if someone thinks it's the wrong thing. So I think w we're all in it together, you know, Thank you. There's on this issue. Women obviously have a very specific and much more intimate uh, relationship with the topic, but, but men are born too, and <laughs> without men, there would be no abortions. Um, I just remember this is a completely random observation, um, uh, and you'll probably appreciate it. I, I won't even give you any reason for how this happened, but I was once on a Sunday at, at Hyannisport with the, mm. with the Kennedys, and a long time ago. <laughs> as one is. <laughs> as one occasionally is. It's a weird story. And I realized it was Sunday and I needed to go to Mass. And oh. there, of course, how am I going to do that? And then my buddy, uh, Max, uh, said to me, well, you know, Grandma has a Mass set of herself a uh, couple of houses down in the compound. You should try that out. So I was like, wow, I'm going to have Mass with Rose Kennedy? <laughs> Uh, and sure enough, um, I showed up. It was me, a priest, Rose Kennedy in a wheelchair um, oh, with, with her, oh. her tongue hanging out. That was, right. it, 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 uh, and this fiery Irish priest who decided that <laughs> not only would he give us mass, which was, which was all I really wanted, he would also give us a homily on the evils of abortion. And I'm <laughs> <laughs> to ancient Rose Kennedy and gay Andrew Sullivan and a, and a nun who was her nurse. <laughs> so, so I thought it's like a nun. wrong crowd. Uh, I mean, but anyway, leaving that aside. Well, um, I'm briefly going to blow your cover because you're one of these generous people who tell stories like that as though it doesn't happen to you a lot. And it, things like that do happen to you a lot. No, so I well. just. Uh, you're generous to tell it that way, but it's an excellent story, which I will now be telling. I was, I was just, I was literally just um, in grad school, so I was, I was a young, I was a young guy, and Max and I became good friends. Um, you know, even Kennedys have human rights, and yes. they're humans. And yes. one of the things I have, and maybe this is just my Catholicism coming, but uh, my mother always told me, you know, don't assume these wealthy, fabulous people are happy. You know, they could be right. miserable. You never know. You never know the stories behind any person you meet, and what looks like privilege may not be privilege at all, and what looks like terrible adversity may be actually uh, overcome by a human beings' ability to grapple with it and to th thrive with it, and to to feel connected to others in it. Um, but how many times do we teach that right lesson to ourselves? 
and it keeps slipping out of our grasp. Mm -hmm. My sister, I just think this is a great story. No Kennedys are in it, but my sister, who's like a Kennedy to me, (laughs) uh, she was in London, living in London, raising her small, very small children and was kind of twilight. And she just had that kind of slightly melancholy feel. Uh, And when you look at the lit windows and you just imagine, you know, despite, you know, what your mother said, you just imagine these perfect lives. And she just looked up into a flat and she could just see enough of it. And she just decided those people, that's it. Whatever's going on there is happiness. And suddenly she realized it was her own flat. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Oh, (laughs) that is not the flat where everything is perfect, but just. That we were, we're just reaching. We're just, we want to believe. It's so much easier to believe if we bought, if we could get enough money and buy a house like that or a whatever like that, that with it would come any kind of mater- expensive material good. With it would come something deep. We know nothing deep comes with it. Many pleasures and great things and family life, having more space in a house, everything is great, but we still think something deep is there. And I think that's why we're both Catholics, because we are reminded <laughs> in every possible way, you know, that there's nothing deep there. Right. In fact, this time of year, I mean, the most familiar homily is the Savior of the world was, didn't have a place to be born in, that, that in fact, the, the Christian mm-hmm weirdness of inverting everything, inverting what appears to be the privileges of power um, as a source of happiness um, is, so, uh, is, so, is so important a lesson, even though, of course, it's almost certainly true that he wasn't properly born in a manger <laughs> or that those stories are really very apocryphal and don't have a huge amount of validity to them, but they're a beautiful reminder. And I was thinking that this this time of year also has this ideal of the perfect Christmas that that haunted me through my childhood and adolescence. That somehow this is supposed to be the best time of year, and everyone's experiencing in that way. And if you're not, if if your Christmas is going awry, if there's some horrible family argument, if somebody's estranged, if if someone is dealing with sickness, if someone is mourning someone they've recently lost. I mean, these things just become so much worse in a way because we're supposed to be feeling so good. Um, And I think that discrepancy is why I've always had a problem with Christmas. Um, What were the Christmases like for you growing up um, in in, in San Francisco? Enter a well of, of memory and whatever that territory in the mind is, that's the area where memory and Christmas go together, I think for many of us, is just an explosively potent territory. And if it goes deep, as it does with you and me, it's embarrassing to talk about, you know, people people don't want to hear about it because they have their own lesser levels of Christmas depression. But um, my parents, everyone's, <laughs> every unhappy Christmas depression is different. But um, my parents had both, they were from that generation that they didn't talk about any of the things you wanted to know about, but they had both had (laughs) tragic childhoods Mm. and they had shaped them in many ways. Mm. 
But one of the ways that they were making up for it was with this Christmas they gave us every year. And it, it never was said on any level, but from a very early level, my sister and I, in this inchoate way of families, understood that our feelings about this were extremely important to our parents and that giving us a kind of perfect happiness that, that they had not been able to have, um, that was, it was just, there was great happiness. My father loved Christmas. He wasn't believing, didn't believe in God or anything, but he had the Santa Christmas and Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And in my earliest years, it's like chasing the dragon, I think, with a drug in that my memory of those early Christmases is that they were, they were, I mean, talking seven, eight, nine years old, they were so happy that things under the tree were enough that whatever was with mom and dad, you know, I, you know, you could kind of feel it, but then it came on more and more on board. And by, by adolescence, I knew I couldn't provide them what they were looking for. Mm. And the hall of my life, you know, what, whatever it was that they had been seeking in Christmas that I had to provide, it was, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it any longer. You know, there's, as you're just what you're saying, you know, there's nothing you can unwrap under a tree that is like a child opening a toy. And, and I just, these feelings of the loss for those Christmases, <laughs> the loss my parents had, which, you know, any kind of sadness that your parents have that they think you don't know anything about, you know, everything about, you just don't know what exactly happened, but you know the tenor of it. And, and then this notion, just like my sister, I'll walk down my street and I'll just see a tree in a window of a house. I don't know who lives there, but it's a beautiful tree. And they're having what I'm missing. And about a year ago, I was in New York at Christmas time to do something at 90 Street, 2nd Street Y and escape with my life. So it was you know, another Christmas miracle. But I had taken my son out to dinner and I was in a cab. It was about 10 p.m., just going back to my hotel. And we're at a stop sign. I just looked up and there was a tree in a window. And I was by myself and I felt a well of grief mm. come up within me of sorrow that was so connected to this tree and my parents and whatever that I actively had to tell myself, stomp that down. <laughs> we don't explore that. So I'm not in any way saying to any listener that you, of course, understand what I'm talking about. It's a rare case. I mean, I'm the last of the red hot Christmas depressives. It really gets to me. What about you? I know you have your issues with this holiday. I, 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 I think what you were talking about, which is that the expectations of this are so intense that if you don't match them, you feel a failure. And so the, there was always a moment at Christmas where the family would turn to me and say, you're ruining our Christmas. Oh, <laughs> you're going to ruin Christmas. Oh, Jesus Christ. Um, excuse me. Oh, yes. that phrase. Yes. Why did you have to ruin Christmas? Like, and, and, and if anything uh, went wrong, you know, anything. And the other real. thing is that, that if, you, if you didn't have a lot of money growing up, then Christmas was always stressful because you were spending money you didn't really have or that was really valuable. And if you threw it away, if you wasted it, if you upset people, 
then of course it would be even more stressful. And, mm -hmm. and also when you come from a not happy home, like I didn't come from a happy home. My parents were pretty much at war uh, most of my childhood and adolescence. And my mother was also a bipolar depressive with um, oh. personality, uh, borderline personality disorder, <clears throat> which we eventually figured out. But, yeah. but uh, so there was this constant stress. And, and the, if we got through a couple of days of Christmas without my parents having a huge fight that we would all have to run away from, we were very lucky. And then one particular Christmas when I was, this is, this is what does you, and I've been to therapy about this, but mm -hmm. I was four years old. My brother had just been born my younger brother, and my mother had gone into a postpartum depression, a really bad one. Mm -hmm. And part of it was because she was overwhelmed and my father had promised her some help and the money wasn't there. And when she realized mm -hmm. she had no help with these three kids and yeah. she was... So on Christmas Day, she... Uh, I don't remember this, my sister does, that she, she completely lost it and mm -hmm. in her nighty walked out into the snow uh, okay. and was picked up by... A local police and taken to uh, a psychiatric place where she was there for quite a while. So that Ugh. trauma of losing your mom at Christmas <laughs> and having her gone for quite a while without any real understanding of what's happening, except it was all awful. Uh, you know, I have gone through this again and again with my shrink or whatever, and uh, I can't. I just decided I can't deal with it. Those, mm -hmm. those, there's such potent symbols around it that they evoke it every year like i can see the christmas ornaments in that mental health hospital oh my God. today where we had to visit her and mm. the christmas tree in the that that place um oh and God. it's just it's it's too deep for me to get rid of and then subsequently also every christmas had that over it and fights and anger and and slamming doors and mm. and yells and and at the same time, everybody trying to make it look like it's also great. And that was the right. other thing, the sheer hypocrisy of it all, the sheer bullshit of it all, that I, as an unruly teenager, was like, fuck this. I, this is all bullshit. I don't want anything to do with it. Go to hell. Mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not participating. And I'm still immature enough to have that. I don't celebrate it. I won't celebrate mm -hmm. it. Um, and I tend to. This time of year is really rough for me because, you know, we're all stuck inside and that also mm -hmm. in england in the in this time of year you have to be stuck inside it's so fucking dark out i mean it's really right, right. <laughs> it's late around 10 yeah. o'clock and it's dark <laughs> at four and it's you know and also the whole country's off for two weeks altogether and the english of course created this nightmare of christmas in, in the victorian era <laughs> they put a big hand in it <laughs> the yes. sheer dollop of sentimentality that is <laughs> part of that that awful christmas carol story that just makes you want to feel awful about yourself um yeah. but anyway uh we get through it um and was it well you know what we just even saying that i as a human being have to say i heard just what you said now and it's I'm sure you've said it all your life, what happened that Christmas, but that's a huge trauma. Yeah. That's a huge trauma. Yeah. And sometimes I think with the big ones, because I've, you know, tried to shrink them out and avoid them out, with the big ones, I think all we can really do is sort of hold them within us with sort of like, not to sound woo-woo, but sort of like, I'm not going to try to defeat you anymore. I'm not going to try to banish you. And, you know, you're part of all this. That's, that's as far as I've gotten because 
I never thought I'd still be dealing with it. Now I'm 59 and I have the same feelings. I know. Uh, it's What was, for example, um, you were, while your boys were in kindergarten, you were diagnosed with They stage. weren't even. They weren't even. Oh, really? They were, okay, they were, they were four years toddlers. Old. They were four, twins. Yeah. Um, and that first Christmas after you knew that you had this uh, really awful disease that is still chasing your tail. Um, mm -hmm. Those events in those contexts can be incredibly difficult. Like the, the Christmases, you're looking at your boys mm -hmm. and you're thinking, how many mm -hmm. Christmases am I ever going to have with them? And at the time, it renders everything with this kind of poignancy. Yes. Uh, how was that? I, mean, I don't mind if you don't mind me asking. You've been so forthcoming in your writing about this yeah. that that uh, that did it get particularly bad at that time of year? Well, I was diagnosed right after Christmas. I was diagnosed ah. in the beginning of February, and it was just—I mean, I've never been able to describe to any other person or in writing the terror, the sun blotting out terror. Uh, all I remember, I uh, driving over there, and in my mind, I had a recipe, thinking I need to stop and get these olives on the way home, and just for a standard mammogram. And then it kept the appointment kept going and going, and going, and then suddenly I'm getting a needle biopsy, and and then he's saying you need to prepare yourself. This is going to come back. You have aggressive breast cancer, and. I just felt my boys, my boys, my boys, you know, and having the things that happened to both my parents, they both tra very tragically lost a parent when each of them was eight years old. It oh. must have been one of the things that brought them together. But we have in my family this idea that the worst thing, and it is a terrible thing, is to lose a parent when you're young. And the guilt and the terror, and, and then underneath that, there was also terror about dying and but yes everything everything with my boys just I was convalescent we, you know we lived in a kind of a LA bungalow and there were moms on the street and um and that we were kind of a little group before all this happened and when I was in the radiation I just remember lying on we put a day bed in there and I could just look out the window and there's all the kids and there's all the moms and my kids are with a nanny. And I'm like, is that, is that their life? You know, is that their life that I'm removed from it? It was, yeah, it was very, very hard. And then as they get older, it gets easier because, um, you know, all the way through, I was like, okay, they've, they've got out of nursery school. They're in kindergarten and I'm here. Well, that's good. Okay, and then they're at an elementary school where a family member teaches, so that there'll be always be someone around for them that that's part of their family. And then, oh my God, I'm at six. I mean, I had a recurrence when they were in fourth grade—a terrible metastatic recurrence, right? Which I was a bit more at peace with because I was like, okay, I just l all everything was measured in what would this age be like to lose a parent? Mm. What would this age be like? And mm. um. And so with that, even though it was very, very serious, I thought, okay, they're in elementary school. They'll have actual memories of me. It won't just be videos. But I don't want them to always be thinking of me. I don't want to be one of these mothers who like 
has recorded a birthday message for I can talk about ruining Christmas, then I can ruin the birthdays too. Yes, <laughs> but- <laughs> like some spectral ghost coming back to them every year. She's dead mother, you know, and you're 37. <laughs> now that you're 37, you maybe have learned that oh. Oh, <laughs> what God. shirt to wear with a herringbone. Um, and if not, I brought in this sort of haberdasher to give you an important lesson. <laughs> but um, each age, I felt better about it. And and then I've often been embarrassed because I have been at death's door a few times. It's interesting you mentioned the New Yorker. I was very at death's door during those two years. And it was a miserable experience being there. And I kind of brought that up to say this is all. And now it just probably seems like a big lie to them, you know, because here I am, you know, <laughs> still alive. And and now I have this recurrence and, you know, the Atlantic's being so wonderful to me. But I don't know. It's I just what, feel embarrassed now that I haven't died. It's Yes, it's called living posthumously. Um, that you, oh, <laughs> that's, yes. that's a, and, you know, the same, I mean, I didn't come as close to you at all, um, but you're 29 and you get this diagnosis as I did. Um, and, uh, and you're also surrounded by people, your friends who are, who are in the process of dying too. So there's this kind of mm-hmm. intensified feeling so that when I, you know, when I, I was part of helping nurse my best friend to death, uh, uh. every agony that he had to go through i couldn't help but see in the future for me too and so it had this you were being traumatized as you were also internally traumatized um but it's funny that you mention your boys because i you know i didn't really i mean i was it was i was completely rocked by it i didn't really expect it to happen even though of course if i was a girl i would have realized you know you're a gay man and it's it's the early 90s what do you expect this could happen um but i just remember thinking about my mom yeah what would this do to her mm-hmm. um and oh, i said every day my mother had died less than a year ago and i said at le- and my father too, at least they didn't have to live through this one yeah and in my case, you know, the the AIDS diagnosis would have just it would also have oh. completely socially isolated her um, where she was, and she probably would never get to seeing it as just not, as n- not some sort of divine judgment of some sort. Uh, mm-hmm. And I just also knew that that our bond, which was forged really in those early days uh, when she was so vulnerable, and I was the oldest boy, and I. I loved her, mm. and, and 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 it was just completely agony to watch her be in such pain all the time. Um, mm. So it it was not crying. I was the first time I really broke down about it. Was not thinking about myself, but about her and what it would do to her, and just the mm. sense of failure that I had failed, that I had done. I deserved this, and that I was going to put my mom through this awful thing, um, oh, and. So you had this with with AIDS. You also had the sense that you were responsible for it. Um, that you in your head, you at least had this. If you catch something like today, people right. are people catch COVID and suddenly it's their you fault. You weren't doing the right thing. Yes, yeah, you. Which is just the worst. But yeah, it's fascinating how you. And then my little nephew was born uh, the next year, and I always joke he's as old as my AIDS. And uh, 
But I remember that time when I was with him, and he's so wonderful. He's such a great chap. Um, and uh, he's grown up now. He's graduate college and all the rest of it. Uh, but uh, that time was so also poignant. Like, here's this kid. i got to spend time with him now because I probably won't see him yeah. go to high school or college. At least that was the, a real possibility. And that kind of it, – did it, did it – I mean, you, you've learned to live for, what, 20 years now? Maybe longer than that? Eight years. With the sense that, uh, that life is incredibly fragile. Right. Um, it, how does that? How does that affect you? I mean, you're more aware, aren't you, um, of mortality, of your own mortality, than other oh, people yeah. might be. Although it's also true that that goes from your head. Um, you know, you're human, so that stuff disappears for a while. You're mad at the the UPS delivery hasn't come on time, or all these other things that, or you know, all the things that life <laughs> throws at you every single day. And for a minute, you don't think I'm a mortal human being. I will die one day, and I may die soon. Um, how did how did you cope with that? Living provisionally, let's put it that way. You live provisionally uh, in in a way that we all do, in fact, but was particularly intensified given your diagnosis. You know, it's funny. It's again, it's something that's uh, you know nobody really wants to hear me talk about it because. You know, the only people I talk to are the people who, who are my friends or, you know, love me. And so the minute I say, well, this could be the last Christmas, or like that, not to my family, but to somebody. Oh, no, 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 no. That is not true. And, but then I just had this other sort of health miracle, which was that, or a health gift. And I hate to say that because let me take miracles out of it. I feel very strongly cancer is something you get. We don't know why you get it. Um, sometimes a particular medication or chemo regimens, it works for someone and they go into a long remission. And sometimes that medication doesn't. And it has nothing to do with how good you are or how you led your life or your attitude. So I have to correct myself in that. But anyways, about um, so I'm going along on my current regimen, which was treatment every three weeks and another one every four weeks, but easy. It was an easy treatment. And I just was going upstairs. And you know, when you when something's going on with your body, it happens so gradually that it's not until you, re you go, oh my God, I can't climb up these stairs. Just mm. one set of stairs to my bedroom. Mm. And I got to my, I just kind of stumbled to my bed and lay on it. And I thought, I'm sick. I better, you know, and I just emailed the doctor and I told her these symptoms and she said, yeah, we need to get you in an emergency scan. And so this was like three weeks ago. Sure enough, the cancer had come back and it was in the top and bottom of, or is in the top and bottom of my spine in a lymph node and lighting up a little bit in, in a lung, um, a small bit. You said three weeks ago? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you're newly, so, you've got this new thread over you. Yeah, but that's my life. You know what I mean? That What you're saying is just my life. And hey, we'll give it a shot. We'll see what they have next. And, uh, and so the oncologist and I were talking and I said, it doesn't seem as though that's enough cancer to cause me so much clinical symptoms, you know? 
And she said, oh, it definitely is because this, even though it's not a lot in your lungs that you see, these cells get into the tissues and be very tiring, whatever. So I was put on chemo again. I started a week and a half ago. And I thought, I must be imagining this. I, about a week later, I said, I must be imagining this. There's no way I, that a week of this could give me so much energy. And I went in and saw the doctor and I said, this is, this is my imagination. He said, oh, not necessarily. So, so far, I have seen a clinical result, which is good. Um, but I'm only at a third the dosing that she wants to get me to. So we'll have to see how I can really tolerate this. Yeah. But, but I'm like, Andrew, every single thing I wanted to do in my life, I've done. Yeah. And there's a lot of other things I'd like to do. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of mistakes I wish I could go back and correct, but everybody feels that way. And, and it's just sometimes an excruciatingly heightened awareness of being loving being alive. And then when it gets really close, really close, then, the ter it, then you can get, you know, afraid again, mm. terrified again. And uh, the funny thing was, I'm nowhere near, nowhere near the assisted suicide situation. I mean, I would be even at top speed and flunking all medications. I would be years away. But I thought, well, this is probably the better time to like get up on my, you know, understanding the way that that act works. Um, End of Life Act in California, one of our few good laws in this insane state. And um, and so I went through and I learned all about it. And it was sobering. I mean, it was like, I felt, thank God for the people who created this act, because to be in an end stage, you know, the last four months of this could be really terrible. But I also thought, oh, I want to live. I want to live. And it just so happened that the next day, I'm cha always changing my psychiatrist to prescribe my meds because I had kind of didn't like the other one. And so he was just giving me this basic screening. And he said, have you ever thought about suicide? And I, well, yesterday, I, it's like, it's not really a question you can ask, you know, because I'm like, hmm, I've got my notes on the suicide act. So I, I guess I have, but I don't think it's a sign of mental ill health. And no. that's where you're kind of living alone in your life, you know? I can see that. Yeah. Um. Happy Christmas, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> At the same time, you know, from that, actually, I was thinking, from my, I, from in that moment of diagnosis, I thought about my mom, obviously, but I also was in the, the reason I found out I was in the final stages of a green card application. And, right. and so that would have also meant I was going to be deported next year because uh, they would take my blood and find this out. And for a long time, that was a bar to anybody even entering the US. It was a Jesse Helms thing that went on forever. Mm -hmm. um, so I had a sort of <clears throat> double blow. Uh, and it was easy to focus on that uh, problem. Like, how do I figure mm -hmm. this out? How can I find a way to stay here um, legally that doesn't uh, require me to give blood um, so they mm -hmm. can find this out, which we did sort out. But it was a way in which you kind of deflected the more fundamental mortality questions that mm -hmm. arise. But, but so then I knew each year I would not know really 
where I be within another year's time. You just, you just, everything was a process. There was no, you couldn't see far ahead. And living that way with this total sense of provisionality was sobering. Um, For me, uh, my friends were very important to me, um, especially since they were going through a very similar situation, either by themselves or with their friends. And, but also I, I have to say, I, I, I was my faith, you know, this, this, this resource that had, mm-hmm. had been with me my whole life, um, that undoubtedly affected me very profoundly as a kid, um, uh, was suddenly alive again in me. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And more and alive. not even in an angry way. It's no, yeah, not no, at all. It's just compl- very alive. Yeah, it's completely salvific. Um, and uh, and I was kind of struck by that. Is is and I felt that sense of faith. However, this belief that God loved me, even during this process when the whole world was telling me they didn't love me. Really, this this felt so unfair in so many ways. Um, but I, uh, I was definitely lifted up and held yeah. mm-hmm. by someone who wasn't in my family because mm-hmm. I couldn't tell in my family because they would all have gone completely bonkers. Um, so I couldn't really have my family's love in this mm-hmm. period either. Um, uh, and there he was. There was God. There was Godness, as it were. There was this welling sense of all will be well and all manner of things shall be well. You know, that great medieval mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. expression of, of what the existence of God means. Um, did you, I mean, you, you, you weren't brought up the way I was in this extraordinarily devout Catholic sort of regimen um, from my mother and grandmother mainly. But you nonetheless have, as I, I mean, I don't, I don't know enough about, about that part of your life, but you, you said Catholic, uh, did, did, did that play a role in any, in any of your grappling with this mortality? Um, it must have in some way. I'm going to answer, but I know I'll kick myself if I don't say this to you, you know, Andrew, I know you know this, but young people have no idea of that AIDS time of what it was like and of blood tests being required to just stay in the country and of People die every single day in the times you'd see someone had died, and people in these churches were saying it was God's punishment and, and all of this. And then, and then with that, because they don't have a sense of history, and maybe no, you can't, I don't really think they know what you did for gay kids and the fact that they. They don't even think about it that they have the right to get married. These young kids, I know. So, um, well, I thank see you. you. <laughs> I see you. I, I appreciate it. It was, it was partly created by that crisis um, because I really did think at the time, well, I've got a few years left, so I, I'm, I'm going to write mm-hmm. down the best argument I can for our equality and maybe – after I'm gone, this will survive. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, so the actual book, my book, Virtually Normal, has an inscription uh, dated the date of my diagnosis to remind myself of how the 
clarity of the case for marriage equality and dignity for gay people sprung out of, the fervor of it sprung out of the experience of watching how people were treated. Mm, um, yeah. that, that, that there were times when the appalling nature of, of how you, someone would have lived with someone and cared for them and watched them die and helped them die and then be shut out immediately from the hospital bed were thrown out of the apartment, not allowed even to the memorial service. This stuff, when you observed that piled on top of this, was incredibly radicalizing in terms of, I don't care. People need to be treated as humans and their Mm -hmm. loves must be respected. And this disease is like any other disease and stop this. And, uh, And I think a lot of what, Amazing energy came out of the gay rights movement in the late 90s and 2000s. It was sprung from that. Those of us who mm-hmm. had lived through it were absolutely adamant it would not happen to anyone again because it was just so yeah. awful. Awful. And, um, you know, hearing you talk about that, my mother was so ardently in favor of abortion. She'd been a nurse. And in the 50s, she had cared for girls. Mm-hmm. Girls who... They were dying sepsis from bad abortions. Mother couldn't come, wouldn't cut. You know, you they they were interviewed by cops, mm. and just they died in extremely terrible ways because sepsis was hard. You know, really couldn't control then. Oh. And it was just, and this idea again that they, and I know there's birth control. It's a different thing, but. The idea that they had done some terrible thing and they had made some terrible mistake. And um, that's how I ended up being pro-abortion. I just thought, I don't want to lose the mother too. And I, you know. And um, that's, I thought, yeah. My faith, um, my parents, you know, my parents were, I mean, I grew up in Berkeley. They were kind of from that New York intellectual set of the 50s. And, um, oh, God is ridiculous. and. And, and that it was also tied to my mother, when her mother suddenly died, all these Baptists telling her that God needed her mother more than she did. And she just decided at eight years old, well, fuck <laughs> well, him, I, you know? <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> exactly. And the ultimate story, oh. this is really a tie. This explains my family's faith. This will bring it all together, Andrew. My father... We were living in Berkeley. My big sister, I probably wasn't born yet. She was five. She was down outside playing with the girl across the street. And the girl across the street's father, my father would call him Reverend Mum. He was like <laughs> some minister. And he really was like this old school Berkeley guy. They, there were people in Berkeley still from the 50s who had been the conservatives because Berkeley radicalized like overnight with this expansion of the university. So my father just, and he would wear, the Reverend Mum would wear like the black suit and whatever. So anyways, my sister runs up to my father who's writing and she says, daddy, daddy, Margaret mom told me there's no Santa Claus. And my dad paused for a moment and he said, you tell Margaret mom, there's no God. And my <laughs> sister, she's a, she's a very, you know, she had no idea what she was saying. She just thought that, the, you know, she followed rules. And my father thought, I'm going to pay for this. And sure enough, they, it was Berkeley. So they had a long stone staircase from their side of the street to mine. Reverend mom, you know, <laughs> suited up, coming down, knocks on the door. 
And he's from the world that, you know, if a minister comes, you let them in and you make tea. But my father had less than respect. And the famous moment was Reverend Mum said, so, you know, my dad's like, so what do you want? Like, there's no, no small talk. And Reverend Mum said, well, your daughter told my daughter there's no God. And my father said, and your daughter told my daughter there's no Santa Claus. And Reverend Mum, I guess he just exploded because he said, but there is no Santa Claus. And my dad said, and there is no God. So it was just like, why it's the ultimate Flanagan story is we didn't have any God, but with Santa and the Easter Bunny, <laughs> we children had to believe in these goddamn things. And any crisis of faith, they didn't want to hear about it. You know, you could be 16. What do you want from Santa? Oh, I hope Santa brings me this or that. You know, you just had to fake it. But um, they made this mistake. Something terrible had happened in the public schools to me in fifth grade. And it was kind of a bad thing. And they decided to take me out and put me. The only option was there was a there were a couple of Catholic schools in Berkeley. This was back when California was full of Catholic schools. Mm -hmm. So against their better judgment, they enrolled me. And they were thinking, of course, you know, we've we've filled her with enough, you know, principles of the family that she won't catch on to any of that mumbo jumbo, but she can get her reading and writing done. The opposite happened. I did no work. I didn't. It was a totally boring curriculum. And the religion class was hopeless because it was like entering a really complicated movie in the middle. You know, it's like mm -hmm. the Pharisees mm -hmm. and the censure. But. In the um, one classroom that was English and and it was already had religion, the nun, whom I very much liked, she had put up these posters. Each one was for the Beatitudes. Mm. And they were they had the Beatitudes, each one. And you'd see a picture of somebody, kind of a 70s, you know, sepia tone, cool picture. And the class was so boring. And I just read these. And I'm not even trying to find faith, just bored. And they came and they started to sound like, because my parents, my mother was very involved with the United Farm Workers, very, very involved with the poor and very involved with the treatment of the poor. And this idea that the poor are a set, kind of a sacred status among us, it made more sense. And then the other thing, mm. and I think this may have been when I kind of something clicked over in me, it was early in my tenure at the school. And a nun came in, the headmaster, what do you call it? The principal nun came in and she told us about some bad thing that was going on. I don't know if it was Vietnam or something in town or Patty or something. And it, I thought, oh, Christ, what does she want us to do about this? You know, we're 11. So she said, and so we are going to pray. And I thought, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> we're going to sit here? Like, there's a, a, an emergency? We're not running out and hitting the alarms and calling 911? You know, we're going to sit here and pray? And I suddenly realized there's something past my father. There's something past this world. There's something where there are miseries that are so great and so profound what you can do is pray and not in a sense of, oh, we have these children here, please answer their prayer, but that, that we were part of the world and that we were part of the world of God and that we were, 
and that everyone, and it was like, they were a lot of bad kids. It was Catholic school. Everything you hear about it was true. And there were bad boys, but they had grown up. They were cradle Catholics. And when the nun told them to pray, their eyes were closed. Their, you know, they were praying and something, and I had always prayed, which I never told anybody from child for earliest childhood, I prayed. And I thought, okay, you know, it was sort of like the opposite of going to the hate in 1960. Like people mm -hmm. would go to the hate, like, hey, my repressive 50s parents have, you know, forget them. It was the opposite. My progressive 50s New York intellectuals, they've been keeping the best thing from me. And to their great dismay, I went deeper and deeper into Catholicism and I I feel very connected. I love things that the things that drive Protestants crazy um, for good reason. But like I love reliquaries. I love weird miracles. I love people who didn't quite get to sainthood. I love the communion of the saints. I love reading about the saints. I just love this whole created world full of the most beautiful music and and you know for unto you is born this day in the city of david a savior you know you're going to beat that you can't beat that you know no, no. i was blessed really um <clears throat> i was um because of my mother's illness i was pushed into uh elementary school a year early so i started going at like 4 with my mm. sister older sister who looked after me in a way and but at this catholic school our lady and st peter's um where Somehow in my brain, I, I, I was lucky enough, blessed enough to be born in a small town in rural Sussex um, in England. Uh, and the school completely and the church integrated nature with God. Hmm. So, so, for example, um, among the things that I just absorbed was, for example, the procession. Mm. Um, on uh, in May, in honor of mm -hmm. Our Lady, May was the month of Mary. The ancient Catholic hymns, English Catholic hymns that were resurrected around then. The fact that we would go out and collect flowers and boughs of um. of, of, of of blossoms and bring them into the church, uh, so that the church was full of all this new life and beauty, mm -hmm. and it was all to celebrate Our Lady. Um, and the rituals and the smell. And mm. the incense and the darkness and the mystery yes. of it. Uh, if you if you grow up in like as I did was growing up in 60s, 70s, small town England. Suddenly, this place was clearly different. It, it, mm -hmm. it had a different pace. It had a different light. Uh, it had a different smell, and it was unlike anything else. And it connected me to ancient times, ancient times, and mm -hmm. ancient traditions. And the idea that in England, certainly, is what I went on to study at Oxford, these incredibly vibrant Catholic communal festivities, you know, the, the processions, the marches, the pilgrimages. Yes. What's happened to those? They're all gone. Uh, we sometimes... But, because LA, rationality took over, you know? I know, it's terrible. <laughs> It is. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 you, I, I, almost, I remember coming when I studied at Oxford, I, I, I was fascinated by the counter-revisionist history, which began to emerge in the 80s and 90s, um, which said that, you know, English Catholicism was not this corrupt, decayed, Bastard terrible style, thing. Yeah. 
It was actually very vibrant, very vivid, and it took an act of real ideological terror to literally break our churches apart, to destroy the stained glass windows, to remove all the iconography, to tear down the rude screens, uh, to abolish the mass and just have these, you go to these meetings where you would talk things. Oh, <laughs> like, you just, just have to sit here and absorb this message as opposed to just being in, 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 in instantiated in these simple, ancient mm-hmm. human rituals. I mean, just the, the kissing of the cross on Good Friday, mm-hmm. just that process. Mm-hmm of abasing yourself before a physical no, object in which you're yes. all exactly the same. No one matters. It, 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 status, nothing matters. You were just there to celebrate the incredible passion of Jesus. And also, the, I don't know about you, but I was, you know, the passion was so vital um, to our understanding of God. I mean, you're suddenly in the church and you're told that Godness is this man who is being tortured. On, mm-hmm. on, a, on a piece of wood. Yeah. Just the paradox you are constantly. So this paradox that life is mysterious and dark as well as beautiful at the same time. Mm-hmm. The, the integration of real suffering into faith life, it made, I think it made sense of my own suffering at the time, my mother's suffering in particular, um, that there was salvation in this misery. Um, and some, sometimes it was only through this kind of pain that you, you, you came to yourself, that you mm-hmm. saw the condition that we are all in. And that ability to transfer almost that physical pain into physical, tangible sacraments and rituals and symbols. Uh, I mean, I will forever be grateful of my Catholic childhood. It was, mm-hmm. and it was enchanted in the way right. it can never be again. You know, it can never be again uh, because you learn too much and you, you, the world disabuses you. And, but for a while then, nature, the seasons, because mm-hmm. I lived in the countryside, mm-hmm. were just so fused with a sense of meaning mm-hmm. and truth that, that I think it's sort of, <clears throat> it's one thing that I still have, you know, severe, uh, issues with modernity, you know, this lack of enchantment, this lack of meaning, this, this mm-hmm. isolation and, and shallowness of our lives. Um, so in a way, I was kind of set up uh, from my youth to understand that if bad things happened, awful things happened, and they will happen, then they're, they're a path to something, mm-hmm. not a dead end. Um, and that, that as a child, no matter what's happening at home, you, you know you're held within something. Yes. You're held within, you know, just this, this system, these rituals, this, these things are going on. And you have a, a very much a place within them. And it's a holding place, I mm-hmm. think, in life um, that, that I, I guess still exists, that probably still exists. but it's. It's very different, uh, and especially being a Catholic child among Catholic children, mm. um, that's a very wonderful experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I will tell you, I mean, if, before you know, everybody runs out and converts. But uh, <laughs> but it happened the year before I came to the school, so I came in sixth grade, 
the school was still getting it together over the fact that a nun had hit this kid, Carlos, who's in my class, so hard that it was like in a stairwell, everyone was in trouble. The, the nun just lost her mind and really clocked this kid. And, you know, for it to stand out at a Catholic school in the 70s, I mean, she must have had like a right hook. And one of the girls had just burst into tears. And so, and that was kind of hanging over, you know, the nun had been sent wherever they sent bad nuns, but it was hanging over the room. It was a, a point of hilarity to the kids by then. And, and it was just, you know, those nuns that were in charge of Catholic education, they were, uh, there were wonderful ones and there were, there were people like that. And, and before the seventies, there was no, mm. and I know to a, I, my soul, I know that, but I didn't know then that one of those priests was one of those priests. Yeah. And I, and I did see that he'd been sent off to some center in Alaska or somewhere that was just priests and they couldn't. So all that coexisted, mm. you know. And one thing I wanted to agree with you on that is, is the understanding there is something beyond you that is unchanging. Yes. That if you enter it, it's a force of great stability um, and reassurance. It's where I described it during the AIDS years as the place that plague couldn't get me mm. because it was always yeah. going to be there. And there is something about, I particularly loved the chanting of the credo. I don't know whether you remember that from your youth, but uh, credo in unum deum. And <clears throat> the thought that that, <laughs> those, that those notes and those words have been spoken and sung for centuries and centuries and centuries. And also, growing up in England, you're also aware that you know, we're, 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 we're weird Christians in as much as we're still attached to this universal church based in Rome, right. when all of Christianity in England have been completely integrated into nationality, the Church right. of England. Right. And so we were also slightly, you know, the Irish Catholics in England, uh, you know, were very weird and small and tenacious minority, which created a particularly strange kind of Catholicism there. Um, but I remember just as a kid thinking, the Church of England? Like, God cares about what island you're on? <laughs> it's just the most, <laughs> the most right. absurd idea imaginable. Like football, the teams. <laughs> and then, because I went to high school, um, what was called grammar school, which is a, a state public high school that you call them, in, in, but a magnet school like Stuyvesant. I, I, I was lucky to get in there. But it was a C of E school. It was a state school. And in England, there's no separation of church and state. So mm -hmm. morning assemblies would take, took place in the local church, mm -hmm. Anglican church, huh. in the mornings. And all I remember is the sheer shock of walking into that church, the first assembly. And boys, it was all boys were running around and crossing the sacristy without genuflecting. It was as if this was just another place for them. Oh <laughs> it was God. as if it was like the supermarket uh, or a football stadium. Uh, and I just, it, it was as shocked as I was when I first saw people taking photographs inside Notre Dame Cathedral. 
what are you doing? Right. You're taking a flash photograph? What You are misunderstanding entirely where you are. And what but I about. think the French are also misunderstanding because, I, I mean, everybody goes their own way, but Europe has lost, so, you know, so much of its Christianity, its Christians, I should say. And, you know, I grew up several years in Ireland as well as Berkeley. So oh, wow. um, you just mass on Sunday. I mean, yeah, you had to, by then my parents were decided that I had to be churched up because I was in this school. And. It's always interesting now watching my father sitting there in kind of half in misery, but maybe not totally that his daughter was being brought up this way. But I just remember this huge church that'd be like on Sunday, five masses, all of them packed, everybody in the family there, you know, the baby's crying, which I love. And, uh, you know, the little kids kind of wandering down. Can I wander down the aisle? No, you cannot. And getting scooped back up. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's and that's completely gone. I mean, yes. and Ireland is of all places has, you know, you go, you know, who's filled the churches now are a lot of the workers that come from Eastern European countries. Yeah. But. Poland and, I don't know. and elsewhere. Yeah, no, yeah. It, Ireland is a Ireland and Spain are the particularly extraordinary examples of the most devout places mm -hmm. in Europe, and and then at this point the least devout places. That um, they were under the thumb of that church. I mean, we would get our linens back from some place. You know, you're Americans. You said, "Go here." And you'd get back your beautifully laundered linens. And only later did we realize it was a Magdalene Laundry kind of a place. Right. That these girls were in there. They didn't have a choice, you know. And the, and the state and the church were almost exactly the same. Yeah. And when it became clear that this, this kind of power was not just giving us fresh laundry, but was right. uh, involving a generation of, of children in this abuse. Uh, is I mean, it certainly is a grown-up. Uh, it's been the hardest thing for me to absorb and deal with as a as someone who personally had no no experience from Catholic teachers, priests, or anything, but but good things, um, and I trusted them. But to see this opened up, and also to see the way in which the tortuous teachings on homosexuality had clearly had an impact in destroying the early psyches of, of people who then went into the church to appease those psyches and then started acting out these hideous uh, coping mechanisms uh, which involved the abuse of children, which I'm, I'm obviously, it's the least, probably the least excusable sin that I can conceive of. Um, just the abuse of a child is... is uh, it still it still freaks me out. I, I couldn't go to mass for I think around nine months at one point because of it. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't. I was so angry and upset. Um, well, in Los Angeles, we sent the boys um, to private schools, and when they were getting ready for seventh grade, I said, "Let's really look at the Catholic schools. I really like that education." And we stopped at one, and it was really I thought this is a solid place. They're doing solid things with these kids, and then we walked passed into the church. They showed us the church to which it was connected. It was a parish school. 
And on the main table, there was a stack of brochures, how, how to identify if your child's being abused mm -hmm. by a priest. So I was sort of like, well, first step to not having my child abused is not <laughs> enrolling him in the place where I have to like be on top of whether or not his, you know, teachers are going to abuse them and, you know, sent them to a secular private school. Yeah. I was supposed to go to a, a Roman Catholic magnet school because they were separated back then. Mm -hmm. My parents took me there and we just immediately were just horrified at the way oh. this place felt. It was just something dark, grim, and clammy about it. Yeah. I can just see the abuse happening there in retrospect, yeah. not at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and my parents put me in the Protestant one. Um, which probably saved my faith, to be honest with you. Right. Um, and of course, we can talk about this, but then again, I look around America, I look at these, these extraordinary passions and animosities and, and, and ideologies and cults that we seem to be gravitating towards, whether it be this, this pseudo-religious uh, ideology of wokeness um, or whether mm -hmm. it be the cult personalities of Trump and the way in which these things have been distorted. It's as if, and I firmly believe this, as if the, the need for human beings to have some orientation in the world that goes beyond simply the material daily survival um, is really intense and important as part of our nature as humans. And you take away the role of these great faiths to, that have over the centuries, over the millennia, have finessed and understood the human condition, mm -hmm. have had geniuses and artists feed into them to create this extraordinary tapestry of meaning that, for example, the Catholic magisterium is, um, which includes, you know, it includes Michelangelo, it includes, it mm -hmm. includes uh, you know, Dante, it, 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 it's a, it's, uh, it's an astonishing civilization, but and without it, even though I understand entirely why that is weakened, we were much less, I think, functional society. We're we're less happy. We're seeking to get from things stuff that those things will never give us, um, or we are trying to replicate those feelings of meaning and of collective meaning in ways that are actually very dangerous and haven't been thought through and split us up into these horrible identities rather than unite us under this common humanity. I mean, that's the one thing that I love about Catholicism. It's Catholic, which means that it's, it, 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 these are the same doctrines, rituals, but they include everybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, you would go to a big and the cathedral I go to here, you know, it's black, white, young, old. It's a real... Oh, truly. Catholicism is the religion that has everyone. Yes. You know, all kinds of people. And I agree with you completely about, you know, wokeness as a religion and these other kinds of things as a religion. And what they all lack, and they'll always lack, is the most important thing, I think, of Christianity, is that you can be forgiven. You can be fully and wholly forgiven by God, and you can be restored to whoever you were before you did whatever it was. And, you know, you may here on earth have to find ways to, if it's possible, make amends with that person or, or, you know, or not just, or just respect that they don't want you to do that, but that God has 
is waiting and welcomes you to be, it's not like, oh yeah, we'll put you on the forgiveness waiting plan. You know, he's ready to forgive anything. And, and at, without at, at that, that's why I think white people that are so hysterically and cultishly involved in uh, the cult of whiteness and white fragility, the reason they're out of their minds with anxiety and tears is that they do believe they're extremely guilty of something that, according to the ideology, can never be forgiven. Yes. You know, so there it's, you know, it's white liberal guilt of the 60s and 70s. That was one thing. This new idea that you are stained from conception with the worst blight that could be. And no matter how good you are and how pure you are and how much you give up and how much you abase yourself or degrade yourself in, in language or in complicity, nothing will, will in any way forgive you of that. I think that's another perversion of this loss of faith, you know. Alternatively, there is the, the cult of believing there is no guilt for anything. That, that, right. that everything you want is cool and that you right. are always good. You are, as I saw on the poster in my local restaurant, it's, you are perfect and you are loved. Right, uh, right. Like, <laughs> I'm fucking not perfect. That much I know. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, put me at the wrong table, yeah. <laughs> and I, I don't regard guilt or shame as terrible things. They're absolutely essential things to understanding your life and to setting it right again and to acknowledging your own flaws. Um, and yes, the sacrament of confession is an amazing thing and the, the, the doctrine of forgiveness. But it rests, you see, I think once you've defined people by an arbitrary characteristic, the color of their skin, for example, and make certain colors of skin somehow more sinful than others, I mean, you begin to see the paradoxes of this. It, 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 whereas the core truth of Christianity, which is why I have such a terrible time reconciling things like Christianity and critical race theory, for example, is that there is neither Greek nor Jew, neither male nor female, but all as one in Christ Jesus. And I sound like a Protestant citing gospel mm -hmm. passages, but, but, but that's Paul. Um, but uh, that was always clear to me. You know, absolutely no, you are no better, no worse than anybody, whatever they look like, sound like, are. And the that was Catholicism, yes. And in my high school, my Catholic high school, oh, close to half the girls were black. They weren't Catholics. They were probably Protestants at home, but their parents, for whatever reason, and it was a, you know, it was a fine school. And there was nothing from the nuns. Oh, God, it was just, and there were a lot of Filipino girls. We were just the girls of Holy Names High School, you yeah. know? And yeah. I have to be always careful with the, I can't stand critical race theory, but the a lot of ideas that have, you know, Ta-Nehisi really, I was reading the reparations piece and he just got to that moment about sort of the mid-century idea that wealth is transferred through houses and all these boomers like me are, I, I had, you know, when our parents passed, we inherit the house and the, the money. And in Berkeley, there was a stark, stark social geography that the whites lived in the hills this was in the 60s and the blacks lived in the flats and i i can't say if i know that they were redlined still in that era, that time but they california real estate wasn't expensive by the way in the 60s it wasn't as though this was prohibitive 
But I thought, and I went to an integrated school. I was Kamala Harris and I were in school together. Um, so, and she has a nice story she tells about it. But anyways, <laughs> I mean, it was good in its ways, but. Um, what are you getting at there? That, that there really was a structural, um, it seems to me, yeah, unfairness. That, that I, that, sorry, that my, that when my parents died and my sister and I got a substantial amount of money because California real estate over the times of our life went so far up and the black kids I went to, and these were, I don't know if it was a GI loan. I don't know if, who backed the loan of the mortgage, but it was something that, that may have been, you can't even get that kind of a loan if you're black. And I thought the black kids I know and that I talked to, and then I interviewed a whole bunch for a piece that never got published, but they don't have that. Right. They don't have their kids' college education my parents were just middle-class people mm. and my dad was just one of those professors when there was a big opening of professors. And then I got to have this chunk of money. And I think that isn't an ancient wrong. I think Tanazi was right in there. It's a, it's a present wrong. Cause I know the people that have been wronged by it. So I absolutely think we're seeing new ideas. And if I think them through and they make sense, I say, oh, this is something that does need to be addressed and I redressed and I don't know how. But then when I see all the bullshit that that goes around with it, it's just laughable. You well, know, it's, it's just laughable. I think this, the, again, it is a practical problem. How do you compensate for this wealth gap that occurred for those reasons, which you you were not responsible for, um, to to ascribe guilt collectively to people living right. today for that? Is is where our Catholicism would say, "Hold on a minute. Maybe they were they our parents or whatever were insouciant about this inequality, and and that's regret terribly regrettable. But we don't hate. We're not. We're not inherently racist because we were the unwitting oh, no, beneficiaries no. of this system, and would be perfectly happy to try and do things that would." ameliorated, but when we're told collectively that, that the color of our skin in itself condemns you, that's, that's an incredibly unfruitful way of rectifying past injustices. Um, and it's never worked. And it doesn't, you don't guilt people or force people into things, into admitting sins they didn't really commit, actually, and, right. and are not complicit in. And it's, 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 uh, yeah, I mean, I I have a you know I'm English. I grew up. I didn't grow up here. So for, for, for you know we we my family was you know uh, immigrant partly Irish immigrants partly English long time but modest modest people who like a lot of other people did benefit. My parents benefited from exactly that real estate mm -hmm. boom. Um, right, and that. That does make a difference, although we've, we, we inherited nothing, actually. Um, <laughs> uh, and probably well, maybe a little bit. Um, but uh, no, that their quality of life. But there wasn't a racial element to that right. in England. Uh, and that is the difference. But it, nonetheless, the class aspects of that, people who could afford to put down a little money on a mortgage early on mm -hmm. were paid off immensely, whereas... The next generation has no access to this stuff at all. And so I, that, I, right. again, that's a well, real see, it's problem. Well, see, it's another thing, Andrew, where it's like 
I am not guilty for actions of people in the past. And yet I have benefited from it. I mm-hmm. have benefited. That was, I, I think, the notion of a structural racism, you know, in, in, in mid-century America, that's kind of showing a divide now as that generation, the World War II generation dies off and kids get their houses. But I think it's going to peter out pretty quickly, that kind of people that have been economically disadvantaged in that way by the government, you know, mm-hmm. um, I would be very open to some idea, you know, but, but on the other hand, do you know what's going on at Dalton now? Dalton school in New York. <laughs> I'm, it's like a gift to me because I'm just writing this long essay on private schools and I wanted to send them a bouquet. But for the listeners, Dalton is like a super, super, super fancy day school in Manhattan, K through 12. It's, you know, $54,000 a year. For kindergarten and and there's at, at, and at that price there's five or six people dying for each spot so all the private schools the good ones the independent schools have gone into criti- into anti-racist issues just completely <laughs> just com- just like a religious conversion and they have presented to the headmaster or whatever they call their the head of school this eight-page list of demands that is comical because one of them is that half of the donations need to go to the public schools. It's like, at Dalton, you you live on donations. You know, either, you know, if, if you feel ashamed as well you might at working at a place where you are at the pleasure of millionaires and billionaires and hedge funders, because that's what runs Dalton School, you know, if you're embarrassed of that or ashamed of that, hey, I get it. Go teach in the public school. But they want, they're apparently on strike until, and you know what? The 129 teachers signed that. And I'm telling you, as a former school teacher in a fancy school, 129 pe- teachers at Dalton didn't believe that. But the pressure to sign must have been unbearable. And the, the idea that if you didn't, you were not an anti-racist must have been intense. Yeah, no, it it it, it is, um, and it's almost as if the institutions that are most dependent upon class, really, that mm-hmm. are most invested in sustaining this new upper class, as a sort of compensation, as a sort of let's let's call it a, a, a an indul a grant of indulgence. It's almost like the old Catholic system, whereas if you paid a certain amount of money, a certain amount of sins would right. be forgiven. Yeah. So that you are sitting there at the very upper crust of, uh, of an in- a grotesquely unequal society. But in order to live with yourself, you're going to enact these incredibly exactly. Dr- exactly. draconian racial <laughs> demographic stuff that really is a way, it's a way for seeking forgiveness. I, mean, I think that's the genius of some of the stuff yeah. is, is, that, is that you create this sense of intense guilt and then you provide the means for them to appease it through writing checks or insisting that other people behave in certain ways or that they can brag about the quote-unquote diversity of their schools, even though even then, of course, the, the, the economic and class questions are so much more intense. And if you were to tackle the class questions, you would go a huge amount of way to resolving the racial inequalities. Well, this is the thing, Andrew, is that 
you know, we always talk about, I think it's 2050 when white people will be in the minority in America. But it will probably, therefore, also change the percentage of African Americans in the country, right? Because if there's more of other races coming in, um, I think that would that would make it a smaller proportion. Could be wrong, probably am. But what I'm trying to say is that, you know, Asian people out earn Americans. Asian Americans out earn um, Americans, and they outperform on every measure academically. So the idea, I think that's why they came up with whiteness, because there's fewer and fewer white people that you can pen, peg all this on. It's called white adjacency. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but the truth is that uh, there won't be a majority, quote unquote, non-white uh, in 2030, because like previous generations of the Spanish or the Italians or the Poles or the Irish, who are immediately identified as non-this or non-white, right. they eventually, in this great American melting pot, associate themselves with some sort of level and identify them. Many Hispanics now do as white. Um, and, and, you know, the difference in the color of my skin, the skin of like a, a, a Latino immigrant from Venezuela or Colombia or something, really not. It's really all, of, I mean, for God's sake, it's all a wash at some level. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I, I sort of think one of the things that one can do, because there's no question that this has driven a certain panic among certain groups, but specifically white evangelicals, it appears, this racial yes. panic that we're losing our country, this is becoming different. I think it would be incumbent upon people on the right end of the spectrum to say, no, this is actually a very familiar situation we're in in America. It's just that we have recently taken on such a massive bite of new immigration. I mean, it's, 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 it's a huge amount to assimilate what we're doing right now. It's the highest proportion of foreign-born people in 100 years. And the mm. numbers are higher than ever happened in America before of people just not born here. Forget about the color of their skin, but people who are just of different cultures. That, uh, that will resolve itself, I, I believe, because America is this amazing, unifying, uh, culturally integrating place if it's left alone. Um, uh, and I don't, exactly. I, you know, where's the country other than America that could go through this much profound shift in demographics and have a system that says no problem. Right. If you're a citizen, you're here, you're equal, you know, there's, there's, you know, it, you're not less a citizen cause you're just 10 minutes a citizen, you know, yeah. it's. Only America could have ever allowed this to happen. And, you know, they're always talking on the on the far left, progressive left and AOC and, and all that about um, they want a Swedish, Scandinavian style socialism. That's the kind of socialism that they want. Every one of those countries is now starting for their first time ever to have immigration, non-white immigration. And it is. It's tearing um, their welfare states apart. Yes. So the idea that 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 other places are somehow better is absurd. Of course, it's absurd. Not, I mean, you could have two, several tiers of that. You can look at Western Europe, which is the the closest analogy in which there have been, there have been ways of immigration, and uh, and no, that's it's certainly you look at France or even Germany. They're having a terrible time 
integrating and and tamping down very right-wing nationalist movements uh, that have sprung up in reaction to this cultural shift, which European mm-hmm. countries have never really absorbed in the past. I look at my own, you know, Brexit is is uh, is 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 an act of of of, of panic almost uh, by the Brits. But at the same time, when I think of Britain, I think you know, London, London today is over over forty percent of its population in London were not born in the United Kingdom. Wow. Now that is simply now New York. It's been the case forever. New York is this great entrepot of like massive numbers of immigrants who go out into this broader continent to make their way. England's a tiny little island that has seen its demographics. Um, but, you know, there was a stat that I that I always bring up. There has been more net gross immigration into the United Kingdom since nineteen. Uh, uh, in since twenty in twenty fifteen, there were more people. This is right. Twenty fifteen, more people gross entered the United Kingdom than entered to become immigrants that entered between ten sixty six and nineteen fifty. Oh yes, I, was this Ben Schwartz's piece? Ben Schwartz wrote that piece oh, a, a while back. Brilliant piece. It was sobering. Yes, it was sobering in the thought, um, not in a thought of of oh terrible race has changed, but in the thought that. A, a society and a culture, I think this all the time about Ireland, because my father was a historian and writer about Ireland. This culture in Ireland existed for so long and created so many things and worked to preserve the language against all odds. And, and it was an extant culture that was created over centuries. And, um, and now it is being, you know, profoundly changed and very, very quickly. And I guess it's good that there's so many, you know, pictures and accounts of the past. But um, something, you know, yes, you. But lost the idea that a, a response to that collectively is a function of evil, racist bigotry, as opposed to seeing it as actually, yes, no doubt there are elements of that in it, but also. Just do you really think you can just change a society overnight, literally the chase pace of change, and not have some kind of response to it? The people feeling completely bewildered about what's happening to their country, um, and in Europe particularly, because you know these places that go back forever and ever and ever. Um, I can go to this little town in East Anglia, Dullingham, and I can see in the parish book people who are my ancestors. Going back to 1066 in this small little rural village, you can go around the graveyard and see all my, all these ancient gravestones of people that come from one part of my family. Now, you take a community like that that's, that's been there for hundreds and hundreds of years with a similar identity, completely same ethnicity, and within about 10 years have 40% of that village be people speaking a different language, it's people from a different place, and it's, it strikes me an amazing testament to England that it's been able to do that without some massive race riots or mm-hmm. horrible, incredible attempt to kind of keep this going, and it's largely been successful. Um, there's not a mass movement to expel these. It's, it's, it's simply a desire to kind of digest it and attempt to maintain some cultural continuity in the face of it, mm-hmm. which I think is a healthy yeah. impulse. And But then you also go to places like, think of places like Russia or places like China, these vast mm-hmm. powers. 
The idea that they would have any immigration of non-Han or non-Russian is beyond their imagination. They have a concentration camp going on for the Muslim population. They didn't just arrive. They've been there forever. Right. And... yeah, you know, I mean, with it, Ireland, I have to, you know, put in a plug for Ireland. You know, England, I sort of go, well, you guys, you shouldn't have probably colonized <laughs> all those countries. You know, makes sense that now they would like to have something of their own. But Ireland, we didn't have our shit together. We didn't colonize anybody. We were just trying not to starve. And so, um, you know, we were colonized. It took a long time to get rid of that. And so the general weight of guilt in Ireland today about the racist past is a very odd thing because they don't have one. Right. Nobody wanted to go to Ireland until only very recently. It was just a poverty and Catholicism and scenery for, you know, my experience of it for most of it. So and I think of the people who worked, I mean, Seamus Heaney, I'm thinking of, and then the people who, Sean O'Reardo with the music, I mean, the people who worked to really understand who we were, you know, who the Celts were, and and there's that famous story, but I've read it in other cultures, but it's that when the, when the Celts first got to Ireland, the chieftains made them burn their boats because it was such a terrible place, they would surely go away if their boats weren't burned, you know? And and from that, this culture and, oh, but it's modernity, you know? I'll just see what arises from it. Yes, liquid modernity, we call it. Yeah. The, <laughs> idea that, the idea that having regret at loss, you know, the, the feeling, feeling grief, in some measure, small or great, about a place you grew up in that now seems very different, extreme, more different than any other comparable period in history in terms of the radicalness of the social changes and the demographic changes at once. Um, the idea that there shouldn't, that isn't a perfectly natural, human, understandable re- reaction to feel some sort of regret, grief. I mean, I, maybe it's just psychological among some of us and not others that some people love the new, always the new, and, mm-hmm. and, and some of us just did not grow up thinking that everything that we encountered that had we had inherited was for those reasons wrong or bad. Right. Right. Uh, this, right. This, this, the incredible arrogance of of what I would call contemporaneity. You know, the <laughs> the cult of contemporaneity in which all you all that everything new must be good and everything old must be bad. Um, now I'm you know I I'm I'm. Personally, I love new things, and I, I'm I'm a you know I'm quite an enthusiast. If you you know if you look at just what I've done with my work, I've like always been trying to figure out the next phase of writing or publishing, and how to how to sustain yourself through this staggering change in, in the media in our lifetimes. Um, and I'm excited by that, and I was you know pushing for marriage equality, things like this. That I think emerge, and you need to change, and you should change. Um, but the idea that I wouldn't simultaneously feel grief at the stuff we've lost um, is, 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 I mean, for me, I have to say, uh, the biggest source of grief right now for me is climate change. Uh, I, it just rips me up to think of, of all the places, all the 
unique, special places that have been roughly what they've been in terms of the climate, in terms of the vegetation. And all of that being, that to me is the great underlying, overwhelming grief that I feel. That we in our generation have are creating a sixth mass extinction. That we've devastated so much of the world. Um, I, I just can't watch, you know, documentaries about the coral reef without being being downcast but what was for that years. News of the new reef that was fa- reef that was yeah. found, and it was thriving. It not not that it's an augury of there being any other like that, but just the thought that there's something we didn't destroy. Right. It's hard you to know? live in a generation where you are aware that. You know, even if we were living in the 30s or 40s and you saw this unbelievable terror and miseries and, and warfare and living through traumas like Stalin or traumas like Mao and all the rest of it, there has always been a capacity for humans to repair that at some future generations to recover equilibrium. This stuff cannot be recovered unless we take very drastic steps. Um, so I've always thought of the resistance to climate change as a, a key facet of conservatism properly understood <laughs> oh yes uh, and yes and it's the it's the adoption of throwaway culture as the holy father puts it um that is mm-hmm. the that is just the the least conservative the the the, the ones that and I, I and i i i do think we will reach back to some of that we, we will have to because it what, what being at one with nature, taking care of it, conserving it, understanding it. So much part of human nature for so long. Um, I was recently just trying to find out how America would have t- played such a big part in all this. And uh, just that in 1971, you know, there had been, you know, Silent Spring in the 60s had been released, mm-hmm. you know, talking about this apocalyptic thing. And then there was this river in Ohio that kept catching fire and it became international news. And out of that, the Environmental Protection Agency was born. And it was a big, badass, powerful, really made cuts in things. You know, Jimmy Carter turning down the thermostat and putting solar panels on the top of the the White House um, and, and all of that. And once again, Ronald Reagan started finding ways to chip away at that to help businesses. And, and ever since, it's just been a very political thing and how much of it can you chip away at. And it, those On the other hand, if you, if you look at the tapes and watch um, Margaret Thatcher address the UN on the ozone layer and the first speech on climate mm-hmm. change, really? uh, you had, she was one of the most, I mean, she was a chemist. By training, oh, that's of right. That's right. Uh, and she grasped this problem, uh, just uh, technically, even though she didn't really get it politically. I say this: mm-hmm. I were I very briefly in '85 worked for her policy, uh, private policy unit, where I made a case for environmental policy as integral to conservatism, oh. uh, which was uh, she didn't reject it, but she really didn't integrate what its lessons were. Um, but the British, you know, the British Conservative Party uh, is, is championing uh, green energy, renewable energy in a way that's really quite remarkable. I mean, they just generated a third of their energy needs last month with wind power. 
No kidding. A third. Uh, now it's blustery, <laughs> blustery in the north, and north, and it does wax and wane. But the fact that the Brits can do that, and that the, the, the there really isn't that big a distinction between the Conservative Party and the Labour Party in Britain on those questions. I mean, there is some. Um, it shows you that this is really almost uniquely American conservative position in terms of responsible right of centre parties in the West, um, which is you know a sign of its. Not its extra conservatism, but its sort of borderline nihilism about a lot of things. But that's another whole question. That's Karen, another whole question. I, I just wanted to thank you for coming and, and being so real and honest with us. And, thank you. Um, and to wish you. They call it. I'm a super fan, super fan. <laughs> well, I, I'm delighted to be able to talk to you. And um, yes. I hope you get through this next uh, seasonal. Uh, <laughs> festivities. Forget um, me, Dan, forget me for Christmas. <laughs> and uh, thank you so much. The ultimate blow <laughs> to die like January 10th. Like <laughs> you had to live through it. <laughs> <laughs> well, with any luck, um, you'll you'll be with us long past January 10th, and I certainly hope so. But I'm not going to be one of those people that tell you you have nothing to worry about. Don't you worry; right. oh, it's all going to be fine. And don't you fucking I mean, like I have the disease. I let me worry as I want to worry. Stop telling me I can't panic about this, please. And don't tell me it's all about attitude. Oh Jesus Lord! <laughs> I know, I know, I know. And I mean, it's always meant well, so it's not, and it's this expression of love. So it's particularly maddening. Um, thing, but yes. I do think everyone has a right to their own mood, and mm-hmm. and Christmas is the, the Hitchens used to go on about this. He hated Christmas because it it basically insisted it sh- your mood should be controlled by some right. collective entity, and right. it was a totalitarian oh, <laughs> one party state for like two weeks, and he hated it. Right. And uh, well, let's let's remember. Uh, I don't know whether you knew Hitch very well, but I know. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, I always remember him this time of year because. He was an atheist and I was a Catholic, but we were at one in mm. hating this time of year. Um, you know, every time you hear a little drummer boy in Starbucks, your heart sinks. Oh, that's... <laughs> anyway, it's On lovely. Lovely to see you. Thank you so much Great for coming and doing of this. Of course. Um, happy holidays. Happy... Happy Christmas. Unto you, this day is born a savior. We're just going to stick on that passage from Luke. Happy Christmas. Okay. <laughs> God bless. You too. Bye. Goodbye now.